Is there any relief ahead on fuel prices? Supply chain companies add diversity and a centennial celebration. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. I am Dave Maloney, I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Right Height. How are you helping to keep your workers on the dangerous drive approach safe? Approach view from Right Height detects backing motion in the drive approach and presents an immediate, clear, audible, and visual warning to pedestrians in front of the loading dock. For more information, visit righthight.com. That's righthight.com. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, we've all seen fuel prices rise to historic heights. What's causing it? Is there an end in sight? And what can carriers and shippers do to alleviate the pain at the pump? To address those questions, we welcome our guest today. He is Glenn Ritchie, and he's the Raymond J. Halbert Eminent Scholar and Chair of the Department of Supply Chain Management in Auburn University's Harvard College of Business. Welcome, Glenn. It's a pleasure to have you with us on Logistics Matters. Thank you, David. I'm a big fan of, of DC Velocity. It's something that I've used for, for years to support the materials that I use in my courses. So it's very nice to be with you this morning. Thank you. We appreciate that. Glenn, across the country, we've topped $5 a gallon for regular gasoline and diesel fuel, of course, which runs our industry is even higher, more than $6 a gallon. These are historic highs and seem to be the result of a perfect storm of causes. What do you feel are the major reasons for the high spike in prices? Yeah, David, it is a tough time. Certainly, uh, I talk pretty consistently with people in the trucking industry who are certainly experiencing a lot of a lot of issues with the input that is fuel that really powers our industry across the board and uh, more than anything, fossil fuel that powers us across the board. Uh, when I talk about uh, oil and gas industry and where prices come from, I typically think about three different areas. Uh, the first is demand, right? And so on the demand side of things, we certainly have seen the world come out of uh, a lot of the, the restraining issues relative to uh, the COVID-19 crisis and the lockdown. So we see world economic growth really uh, uh, starting to improve. And along with that, demand for oil, obviously, and gas becomes a big issue. And then in the United States, we are also seeing seasonal demand increase because this is our uh, holiday time period. And while people remain somewhat concerned about traveling overseas at distance, uh, we'd expect to see them spend more time with uh, local trips, which adds again to driving cars around the country building up demand and driving fuel prices higher. On the supply side, we have a couple of interesting things going on. Uh, we're all uh, familiar with the supply disruptions issues that we had to deal with. Uh, I certainly applaud uh, the supply chain executives across multiple different functions that have worked through a number of these different blockades and barriers that have been problematic for us. Certainly the trucking crisis is still a problem and uh, there's concern uh, the past two weeks with independent truckers looking at the cost of fuel and what they're actually taking home after that cost of fuel and perhaps considering leaving an industry where we already have a crisis of needing more manpower behind the wheel. Um, certainly the man-made disasters uh, in Ukraine and Russia are a problem and they are restricting supply. Uh, and also we're approaching a time period where the Gulf Coast sees natural disasters in the forms of hurricanes. And there's plenty of oil and gas production that comes out of our region, which is related also to 
uh, supply. The other side of the supply issue comes directly from the Biden administration and the government. And typically I don't go direct on talking on about political issues like this, but the reality is it's right in front of us. And I don't feel like the Biden administration is taking credit uh, for the things that they've done relative to production and exploration. So restrictions have been placed on the industry. And because of that, corporations are being very timid in the face of not knowing what's going to happen next and not understanding exactly what the uncertainty is in the market. Um, I typically talk about the, the strategy that executives in these major companies are, are using relative to their speculation about future events. And so, you know, to take it kind of down home to uh, a, a personal situation, we can think back to when compact discs were uh, very, uh, maybe the, the, the thing to, to buy when you wanted to listen to music in your home or wanted to watch movies. And uh, let's imagine that during that time period when they were popular, the federal government came out and said, these compact discs are littering the, the country, they're bad for the environment. We're gonna move to electronic media. If you were the CEO of one of those businesses making those CDs, you'd continue to do that, but you'd certainly restrict exploration and the technology and really producing more because the industry was being pushed by the government into a dog situation. And so what you try to do is get what you can out of the industry and use it to spend money to pay for new alternative sources where you can move into new market and new market opportunities. So there's a problem there where these companies are being very conservative because there's so much uncertainty in the marketplace relative to interventionism. Obviously, we're also impacted by inflation, inflation driven by a number of different things, many of the things we just discussed, uh, certainly printing more dollars uh, during our earlier plan to try to get the company back, the country back in flow. Uh, has been a part of an issue as well. Sure. And now we're looking at things like uh, OPEC and are we going to have them help fund and support what we're doing? So it's a complex situation. I could probably go on for uh, quite a long time, but I think those hit the hit the high points, David. So looking at all those issues, and obviously there are a myriad of problems that have created them, are there things that can be done practically by either the government, the Biden administration or Congress to to help to stabilize prices? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, that one of the things that we, we could really start with from a federal position is to try to work with these companies rather than than, than be adversarial toward them. I mean, early on uh, in the administration, of course, even on the campaign trail, uh, things were said like, we're going to completely get rid of fossil fuels. Uh, we're going to put oil and gas executives in jail. That's where they need to go. There were questions about fracking and all of those different things. And, and whether those things were reality or rhetoric, uh, they actually put signals into the market that the market is going to be uncertain, that there are going to be problems and barriers. So I do think that the Biden administration and, and uh, related uh, regulatory industries or, or companies could, could get involved and say, what can we do? How can we do some exploration to start move, moving this forward? I also want to say that, you know, it's important that we continue to make a transition away from fossil fuels to help the environment. Uh, but we really don't have the infrastructure in place to make that happen, especially in truck driving. So, you know, those are long-term goals and we simply can't just go cold turkey uh, and hope that uh, we're going to have these uh, efficient uh, energy focused, the environmentally focused uh, substitutes yet. So it's going to have take time to make that transition. So now I think going in saying, okay, here's what we need to know. This is what we need to do rather than being in an adversarial position, will help us hopefully get the prices down somewhat. Uh, but cer certainly right now, the estimates aren't that they're coming down anytime soon. We know that both the federal government and the states also tax each gallon of fuel that is sold. 
Um, some states have actually temporarily lowered or suspended the tax to help cushion that pain at the pump. Is the federal government able to do the same, and should more states also consider temporarily lowering their gas taxes? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, and of course, we're we're hearing lots of uh, different politicians talk about this. You know, the the, the federal uh, tax on petroleum is uh, 18.4 percent, diesel is 24.4. Um, you know, back when when gas was uh, uh, two bucks. Uh, those seem like pretty sizable numbers. Now that we're looking at six bucks, the numbers don't look as sizable. So maybe it gives us a bit of relief. Certainly in trucking, where we're consuming a whole bunch of fuel, uh, it would be supportive. Uh, and so when we look, you know, at, at uh, states like California that are at 86 and a half cents a gallon, uh, giving some time to, to let the prices come down and, and reducing those taxes could certainly help industry. Uh, my question in, in such a short-term decision is always, where does that revenue for the government come from later? Um, how do they, they recoup what they've lost? So certainly it could help us in the short term. And uh, it, it's nice to see some states considering that. Uh, but I'm not sure that it's a long-term solution. So in the meantime, what can carriers do to mitigate the impact of high fuel prices? Yeah, well, obviously, the, the, the first step that most of our carriers have to deal with is deciding how much they're going to pass through with the customer. And at rates that we're at right now, uh, that's fundamentally what we end up doing from an economic sense. Uh, certainly, there are opportunities to try to, to cube out vehicles, uh, you know, make sure that you're not running uh, less than a truckload uh, if you can help it. Uh, maybe there are ways to tighten up those milk runs and those routes uh, to reduce the, uh, the, the fuel consumption across the board. Those are probably uh, the major issues. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the need for fuel and the growth and demand overall is something that we just have to deal with. And finally, how can shippers deal with increasing fuel surcharges that they must be able to absorb? Yeah, that's a whole different discussion. And of course, we've, we've seen some criticism of uh, uh, shippers and dealing with both uh, rates coming into ports and those types of issues across the board. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the same type thing. They're kind of riding the seas uh, and trying to deal with those costs. And, and certainly, uh, when we think about ocean-going freight, uh, we've seen changes in, in fuel requirements and those standards. So uh, I really don't have a good answer for that. And uh, I do know that the, the cost of the containers is killing us right now. Um, I, I ultimately think, David, that, that this gets back to exploration and more production in the United States. And reducing exploration and production in the United States has had an impact on oil and gas prices, not only in our country, but in several other countries across the globe. So. Uh, that's probably where we start, uh, get our leaders together in industry and government, and try to get together on how we produce more to bring price down. It's a, it's a big task ahead of us, that's for sure. We've been talking with Glenn Ritchie. He's the chair of the Department of Supply Chain Management at Auburn University. Thank you, Glenn, for being with us today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, David. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. And Ben, you wrote this week on new efforts to bring diversity to supply chain companies. What more can you tell us? Yeah, one of the aspects of supply chain management we've been covering more and more in recent months is hiring and employment practices. It's an issue that got a lot of attention during the pandemic, of course, when people were sick or wanted to avoid spreading the virus to the vulnerable or couldn't work in close proximity to their colleagues. Um, of course, in logistics, a lot of workers were part of what we grew to know as the essential workforce, the frontline workers uh, who, who had to keep on showing up. 
But the hiring and employment also had to do with racial justice movement that we saw with the protest marches last summer. Uh, also, there were long-term labor shortages to do with the wave of retiring baby boomers. And as part of both of those, the rise of uh, what's known as diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. So this week, we learned more about that DEI and about how supply chain companies in particular are doing in their efforts to hire more people of color. So it turns out that companies in the supply chain sector employ more people of color at every level of the organization when that company is publicly held as opposed to privately owned. So that finding comes from a survey by uh, Gartner, the analyst group, and the Association for Supply Chain Management. Uh, Gartner and the association surveyed almost 400 supply chain professionals located mostly uh, US, Canada, Europe, and they found that people of color make up 35% um, of the overall supply chain workforce in public companies, but just 30% at private ones. Uh, and then looking up the executive ladder, people of color make up 13% of vice presidents at public companies, but 7% at private ones. Ben, did the study suggest any reasons for those differences or ways to make up the gap? Well, uh, great question, right? I mean, it, it, it's one thing to, to you know, point a spotlight at this, but how do we uh, make progress? Uh, Gartner and the Association for Supply Chain Management didn't identify really specific strategies to improve that hiring and promotion environment, but they did find one major common factor, uh, and that was simply to have specific DEI initiatives defined as part of the supply chain division's corporate goals or mission statements, in part because that can help hold supply chain leaders accountable for reaching those goals. Uh, that was according to Dana Stifler. She's vice president analyst with Gartner's supply chain practice. And she found that nearly all, 93% of their respondents that were in the large global organizations uh, have specific DEI goals, but just 37%, about a third of that, uh, have those specific goals in smaller organizations. Um, that, that, that's a comparison of large to small, not necessarily publicly traded to privately you held. Know, uh, so a little bit different yardstick there. Uh, but that may be one reason that public companies also are making some progress. Uh, for example, the pay gap is actually narrower between racial and ethnic groups in public organizations than private ones. Um, so Association for Supply Chain Management's CEO, Abe Eshkenazi, said that that was encouraging, uh, but what we need to do, he said, is to completely close the gap so that all organizations, public and private, are places where racial and ethnic minorities, women, LGBTQ, physical abilities, and others have equal opportunities. In fact, Eshkenazi said if companies don't succeed in this area, they could start to run into really acute labor shortages down the road because as he said, and as we were talking about with our guest, it's a tough economic climate out there right now. And he said there's no let up in sight for this continued state of disruption. Uh, so it, it's going to be a fascinating thing to, uh, to track, and uh, we'll try to keep an eye on it. Certainly will be. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. And Victoria, you wrote about a centennial celebration you attended this week. Can you share some details? Yes, that's right, Dave. Happy to. So lift truck manufacturer, the Raymond Corporation, is celebrating its 100th year in business this year. And the company formally marked the occasion this past Tuesday, which also happened to be National Forklift Safety Day. So it was a double celebration of sorts. Um, Raymond celebrated the anniversary with a ceremony at its upstate New York headquarters that included about 150 invited guests. Those were past and present company leaders, employees, and business partners 
as well as state and local government officials, and of course, some of the press. I was there, as you mentioned. Um, and the company used the occasion to really celebrate um, what it referred to as its history of innovation and material handling. And that includes a series of inventions in the 1920s and 30s that really set the company on that path. Uh, Steve Raymond, who is a former president of Raymond Material Handling Concepts and is also actually the grandson of company founder George Raymond Sr. Um, he was one of the speakers at the event. And he pointed to two company inventions in particular that really kind of revolutionized uh, the material handling industry. One was the double-faced wooden pallet and the other was the hydraulic lift truck that was designed to move it. It was actually the first hydraulic lift truck uh, ever invented. Both products were patented in the 1930s, and the double-faced wooden pallet actually remains an industry standard today. Its design essentially allows for um, higher stacking of crushable goods and has really helped standardize the way products are stored and transported. And um, in talking to Steve um, at the event, you know, he said, if you think about the way inventory was stored in the 20s and 30s, you know, in barrels, crates, and sacks, uh, you realize what an important, though seemingly simple invention uh, that pallet was. It really enabled more stable, uniform storage. And Steve Raymond, he, he sort of emphasized that point in his speech and in a conversation that we had and just focused on how important this, as I say, seemingly simple invention was for the entire industry. Uh, just as another little side note, the company um, eventually donated the patent for the pallet to the material hand handling industry and focused its work on forklifts and other material handling equipment. And as many of our listeners I'm sure know, today the company produces tens of thousands of lift trucks every year from its flagship manufacturing facility in Green, New York, as well as a second one in Iowa. So it seems the event also celebrated the broader industry as well as the company itself, right? Absolutely. And Steve, again, who's retired from the company, um, he's actually spending a lot of time researching the company's history and is, is planning to publish an officially his history of it at some point. Um, and he said it's a project he really hopes Raymond employees and business partners, as well as the broader material handling industry, will appreciate. And that's because the industry is so vital to keeping trade flowing. Um, we often talk about the importance of the supply chain, especially over the past two years as it's made the mainstream news. Well, material handling equipment is a vital part of that process. And I think Steve put it really nicely when he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that you know, he really, he said anyone who was lucky enough to find their way to material handling or have the industry find them should enjoy it, be proud of it, and make a career of it because it's really important work. Um, our modern society would have a hard time functioning without it. And his message was that simple things like pallets and forklifts are often you know, sort of overlooked. Um, but they shouldn't be. And he said it more than once and in a few different ways, essentially don't take the palette for granted. And I just thought it was a nice reminder of the important work professionals throughout the supply chain do every day. It is a great industry and our congratulations to the Raymond Corporation on their 100 years of serving it. Thanks, yes, Victoria. Absolutely. We encourage our listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories. And check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. And again, our thanks to Glenn Ritchie of Auburn University for being our guest today. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. 
And speaking of subscribing, we encourage you to check out our new sister podcast series, Supply Chain in the Fast Lane. It's co-produced by the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals and Supply Chain Quarterly. Subscribe to Supply Chain in the Fast Lane wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Right Height. How are you helping to keep your workers on the dangerous drive approach safe? Approach view from Right Height detects backing motion in the drive approach and presents an immediate, clear, audible, and visual warning to pedestrians in front of the loading dock. For more information, visit righthite.com. That's R-I-T-E-H-I-T-E.com. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters when we will discuss driver retention. So be sure to join us. Until then, have a great week.